Chapter Fourteen Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne. GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Fourteen. In rough magnificence arrayed, when ancient chivalry displayed the pomp of her heroic games, and crested chiefs and tissued dames assembled at the clarion's call in some proud castle's high arched hall. Wharton. Prince John held his high festival in the castle of Ashby. This was not the same building of which the stately ruins still interest the traveller, and which was erected at a later period by the Lord Hastings, High Chamberlain of England, one of the first victims of the tyranny of Richard III, and yet better known as one of Shakespeare's characters than by his historical fame. The castle and town of Ashby at this time belonged to Roger de Quincey, Earl of Winchester, who during the period of our history was absent in the Holy Land. Prince John, in the meanwhile, occupied his castle, and disposed of his domains without scruple, and seeking at present to dazzle men's eyes by his hospitality and magnificence, had given orders for great preparations, in order to render the banquet as splendid as possible. The purveyors of the prince, who exercised on this and other occasions the full authority of royalty, had swept the country of all that could be collected which was esteemed fit for their master's table. Guests also were invited in great numbers, and in the necessity in which he then found himself of courting popularity, Prince John had extended his invitation to a few distinguished Saxon and Danish families, as well as to the Norman nobility and gentry of the neighborhood. However despised and degraded on ordinary occasions, the great numbers of the Anglo-Saxons must necessarily render them formidable in the civil commotions which seemed approaching, and it was an obvious point of policy to secure popularity with their leaders. It was accordingly the prince's intention, which he for some time maintained, to treat these unwanted guests with a courtesy to which they had been little accustomed. But, although no man with less scruple made his ordinary habits and feelings bend to his interest, it was the misfortune of this prince that his levity and petulance were perpetually breaking out, and undoing all that had been gained by his previous dissimulation. Of this fickle temper he gave a memorable example in Ireland, when sent thither by his father, Henry the Second, with the purpose of buying golden opinions of the inhabitants of that new and important acquisition to the English crown. Upon this occasion the Irish chieftains contended which should first offer to the young prince their loyal homage and the kiss of peace. But, instead of receiving their salutations with courtesy, John and his petulant attendants could not resist the temptation of pulling the long beards of the Irish chieftains, a conduct which, as might have been expected, was highly resented by these insulted dignitaries, and produced fatal consequences to the English domination in Ireland. 
It is necessary to keep these inconsistencies of John's character in view, that the reader may understand his conduct during the present evening. In execution of the resolution which he had formed during his cooler moments, Prince John received Cedric and Athelstane with distinguished courtesy, and expressed his disappointment, without resentment, that the indisposition of Rowena was alleged by the former as a reason for her not attending upon his gracious summons. Cedric and Athelstane were both dressed in the ancient Saxon garb, which, although not unhandsome in itself, and in the present instance composed of costly materials, was so remote in shape and appearance from that of the other guests, that Prince John took great credit to himself with Valdemar Fitzurse for refraining from laughter at a sight which the fashion of the day rendered ridiculous. Yet, in the eye of sober judgment, the short, close tunic and long mantle of the Saxons was a more graceful as well as a more convenient dress than the garb of the Normans, whose undergarment was a long doublet so loose as to resemble a shirt or wagoner's frock covered by a cloak of scanty dimensions, neither fit to defend the wearer from cold or from rain, and the only purpose of which appeared to be to display as much fur, embroidery, and jewellery work as the ingenuity of the tailor could contrive to lay upon it. The Emperor Charlemagne, in whose reign they were first introduced, seems to have been very sensible of the inconveniences arising from the fashion of this garment. "'In heaven's name,' said he, to what purpose serve these abridged cloaks? If we are in bed, they are no cover. On horseback, they are no protection from the wind and rain, and when seated, they do not guard our legs from the damp or the frost. Nevertheless, in spite of this imperial objurgation, the short cloaks continued in fashion down to the time of which we treat, and particularly among the princes of the house of Anjou. They were therefore in universal use among Prince John's courtiers, and the long mantle which formed the upper garment of the Saxons was held in proportional derision. The guests were seated at a table which groaned under the quantity of good cheer. The numerous cooks who attended on the prince's progress, having exerted all their art in varying the forms in which the ordinary provisions were served up, had succeeded almost as well as the modern professors of the culinary art in rendering them perfectly unlike their natural appearance. Besides these dishes of domestic origin, there were various delicacies brought from foreign parts, and a quantity of rich pastry, as well as of the simnel bread and wassail cakes, which were only used at the tables of the highest nobility. The banquet was crowned with the richest wines, both foreign and domestic. But, though luxurious, the Norman tables were not generally speaking an intemperate race. While indulging themselves in the pleasures of the table, they aimed at delicacy, but avoided excess, and were apt to attribute gluttony and drunkenness to the vanquished Saxons, as vices peculiar to their inferior station. Prince John, indeed, and those who courted his pleasure by imitating his foibles, were apt to indulge to excess in the pleasures of the trencher and the goblet. And, indeed, it is well known that his death was occasioned by a surfeit upon peaches and new ale. His conduct, however, was an exception to the general manners of his countrymen. 
With sly gravity, interrupted only by private signs to each other, the Norman knights and nobles beheld the ruder demeanour of Athelstane and Cedric at a banquet, to the form and fashion of which they were accustomed. And while their manners were thus the subject of sarcastic observation, the untaught Saxons unwittingly transgressed several of the arbitrary rules established for the regulation of society. Now, it is well known that a man may with more impunity be guilty of an actual breach, either of real good breeding or of good morals, than appear ignorant of the most minute point of fashionable etiquette. Thus, Cedric, who dried his hands with a towel, instead of suffering the moisture to exhale, by waving them gracefully in the air, incurred more ridicule than his companion Athelstane, when he swallowed to his own single share the whole of a large pasty composed of the most exquisite foreign delicacies, and termed at that time a carumpie, when, however, it was discovered, by a serious cross-examination, that the Thane of Cunningsburg, or Franklin, as the Normans termed him, had no idea what he had been devouring, and that he had taken the contents of the carumpie for larks and pigeons, whereas they were, in fact, becheficos and nightingales. His ignorance brought him in for an ample share of the ridicule which would have been more justly bestowed on his gluttony. The long feast had at length its end, and while the goblet circulated freely, men talked of the feats of the preceding tournament, of the unknown victor in the archery games, of the black knight, whose self-denial had induced him to withdraw from the honours he had won, and of the gallant Ivanhoe, who had so dearly bought the honours of the day. The topics were treated with military frankness, and the jest and laugh went round the hall. The brow of Prince John alone was overclouded during these discussions. Some overpowering care seemed agitating his mind, and it was only when he received occasional hints from his attendants that he seemed to take interest in what was passing around him. On such occasions he would start up, quaff a cup of wine as if to raise his spirits, and then mingle in the conversation by some observation made abruptly or at random. "'We drink this beaker,' said he, "'to the health of Wilfred of Ivanhoe, champion of this passage of arms, and grieve that his wound renders him absent from our board. Let all fill to the pledge, and especially Cedric of Rotherwood, the worthy father of a son so promising.' "'No, my lord,' replied Cedric, standing up, and placing on the table his untasted cup. "'I yield not the name of son to the disobedient youth, who at once despises my commands, and relinquishes the manners and customs of his fathers.' "'Tis impossible,' cried Prince John, with well-feigned astonishment, "'that so gallant a knight should be an unworthy or disobedient son.' "'Yet, my lord,' answered Cedric, it is so with this Wilfred. He left my homely dwelling to mingle with the gay nobility of your brother's court, where he learned to do those tricks of horsemanship which you prize so highly. He left it contrary to my wish and command. And in the days of Alfred that would have been termed disobedience, ay, and a crime severely punishable. Alas! replied Prince John, with a deep sigh of affected sympathy. Since your son was a follower of my unhappy brother, it need not be inquired where or from whom he learned the lesson of filial disobedience. 
Thus spake Prince John, willfully forgetting that all of the sons of Henry the Second, though no one was free from the charge, he himself had been most distinguished for rebellion and ingratitude to his father. I think, said he, after a moment's pause, that my brother proposed to confer upon his favorite the rich manor of Ivanhoe. He did endow him with it, answered Cedric. Nor is it my least quarrel with my son that he stopped to hold, as a feudal vassal, the very domains which his fathers possessed in free and independent right. We shall then have your willing sanction, good Cedric, said Prince John, to confer this fief upon a person whose dignity will not be diminished by holding land of the British crown. Sir Reginald Frontbeuf, he said, turning towards that baron, I trust you will so keep the goodly barony of Ivanhoe, that Sir Wilfred shall not incur his father's farther displeasure by again entering upon that fief. By St. Anthony, answered the black-browed giant, I will consent that your highness shall hold me a Saxon, if either Cedric or Wilfred, or the best that ever bore English blood, shall wrench from me the gift with which your highness has graced me. Whoever shall call thee Saxon, Sir Baron, replied Cedric, offended at a mode of expression by which the Normans frequently expressed their habitual contempt of the English, will do thee an honour as great as it is undeserved. Frontbeuf would have replied, but Prince John's petulance and levity got the start. Assuredly, said he, my lords, the noble Cedric speaks truth, and his race may claim precedence over us as much in the length of their pedigrees as in the longitude of their cloaks. They go before us indeed in the field as deer before dogs, said Malvoisin. And with good right may they go before us, forget not, said the prior Aymer, the superior decency and decorum of their manners. Their singular abstemiousness and temperance, said De Bracy, forgetting the plan which promised him a Saxon bride. Together with the courage and conduct, said Brian de Bois-Gilbert, by which they distinguished themselves at Hastings and elsewhere. While, with smooth and smiling cheek, the courtiers, each in turn, followed their prince's example, and aimed a shaft of ridicule at Cedric. The face of the Saxon became inflamed with passion, and he glanced his eyes fiercely from one to another, as if the quick succession of so many injuries had prevented his replying to them in turn, or, like a baited bull, who, surrounded by his tormentors, is at a loss to choose from among them the immediate object of his revenge. At length he spoke, in a voice half choked with passion, and addressing himself to Prince John as the head and front of the offence which he had received. Whatever, he said, have been the follies and vices of our race, a Saxon would have been held nittering, the most emphatic term for abject worthlessness, who should in his own hall, while his own wine-cup passed, have treated or suffered to be treated an unoffending guest as your highness has this day beheld me used. And whatever was the misfortune of our fathers on the field of Hastings, those may at least be silent. Here he looked at Frontbeuf and the Templar, who have within these few hours once and again lost saddle and stirrup before the lance of a Saxon. Begin note about nittering. 
there was nothing accounted so ignominious among the Saxons as to merit this disgraceful epithet. Even William the Conqueror, hated as he was by them, continued to draw a considerable army of Anglo-Saxons to his standard, by threatening to stigmatize those who stayed at home as needering. Bartholinus, I think, mentions a similar phrase which had like influence on the Danes. L.T. End of Note on Nittering By my faith, a biting jest, said Prince John. How like you it, sirs? Our Saxon subjects rise in spirit and courage, become shrewd in wit and bold in bearing in these unsettled times. What say ye, my lords? By this good light I hold it best to take our galleys and return to Normandy in time. For fear of the Saxons? said de Bracy, laughing. We should need no weapon but our hunting-spears to bring these boars to bay. A truce with your raillery, sir knights, said Fitzurse, and it were well, he added, addressing the prince, that your highness should assure the worthy Cedric there is no insult intended him by jests, which must sound but harshly in the ear of a stranger. Insult? answered Prince John, resuming his courtesy of demeanour. I trust it will not be thought that I could mean, or permit any, to be offered in my presence. Here I fill my cup to Cedric himself, since he refuses to pledge his son's health. The cup went round amid the well-dissembled applause of the courtiers, which, however, failed to make the impression on the mind of the Saxon that had been designed. He was not naturally acute of perception, but those too much undervalued his understanding who deemed that this flattering compliment would obliterate the sense of the prior insult. He was silent, however, when the royal page again passed round. To Sir Athelstane of Cunningsburg. The knight made his obeisance, and showed his sense of the honour by draining a huge goblet in answer to it. "'And now, sirs,' said Prince John, who began to be warmed with the wine which he had drank, Having done justice to our Saxon guests, we will pray of them some requital of our courtesy. Worthy Thane, he continued, addressing Cedric, may we pray you to name to us some Norman whose mention may least sully your mouth, and to wash down with a goblet of wine all bitterness which the sound may leave behind it? Fitzurse arose while Prince John spoke and gliding behind the seat of the Saxon, whispered to him not to omit the opportunity of putting an end to unkindness betwixt the two races, by naming Prince John. The Saxon replied not to this politic insinuation, but, rising up, and filling his cup to the brim, he addressed Prince John in these words, "'Your Highness has required that I should name a Norman deserving to be remembered at our banquet.' This, perchance, is a hard task, since it calls on the slave to sing the praises of the master. Upon vanquished, while pressed by all the evils of conquest, to sing the praises of the conqueror. Yet I will name a Norman, the first in arms and in place, the best and the noblest of his race. And the lips that shall refuse to pledge me to his well-earned fame, I term false and dishonoured, and will so maintain them with my life. I quaff this goblet to the health of Richard the Lionhearted. Prince John, who had expected that his own name would have closed the Saxon's speech, started when that of his injured brother was so unexpectedly introduced. 
He raised mechanically the wine-cup to his lips, then instantly set it down. To view the demeanour of the company at this unexpected proposal, which many of them felt it as unsafe to oppose as to comply with. Some of them, ancient and experienced courtiers, closely imitated the example of the prince himself, raising the goblet to their lips and again replacing it before them. There were many who, with a more generous feeling, exclaimed, "'Long live King Richard! And may he be speedily restored to us!' And some few, among whom were Frontbeuf and the Templar, in sullen disdain suffered their goblets to stand untasted before them. But no man ventured directly to gainsay a pledge filled to the health of the reigning monarch. Having enjoyed his triumph for about a minute, Cedric said to his companion, "'Up, noble Athelstane! We have remained here long enough, since we have requited the hospitable courtesy of Prince John's banquet. Those who wish to know further of our rude Saxon manners must henceforth seek us in the homes of our fathers, since we have seen enough of royal banquets and enough of Norman courtesy.' So saying, he arose and left the banqueting-room, followed by Athelstane and by several other guests, who, partaking of the Saxon lineage, held themselves insulted by the sarcasms of Prince John and his courtiers. "'By the bones of St. Thomas,' said Prince John, as they retreated, "'the Saxon churls have borne off the best of the day, and have retreated with triumph.' "'Conclamatum est poculatum est,' said Prior Aymer. "'We have drunk and we have shouted. It were time we left our wine-flagons.' The monk hath some fair penitent to shrive to-night, that he is in such a hurry to depart, said de Bracy. Not so, sir knight, replied the abbot, but I must move several miles forward this evening upon my homeward journey. They are breaking up, said the prince in a whisper to Fitzurse. Their fears anticipate the event, and this coward prior is the first to shrink from me. Fear not, my lord, said Valdemar. I will show him such reasons as shall induce him to join us when we hold our meeting at York. Sir Prior, he said, I must speak with you in private before you mount your palfrey. The other guests were now fast dispersing, with the exception of those immediately attached to Prince John's faction and his retinue. This, then, is the result of your advice, said the prince, turning an angry countenance upon Fitzurse that I should be bearded at my own board by a drunken Saxon churl, and that on the mere sound of my brother's name, men should fall off from me as if I had the leprosy. "'Have patience, sir,' replied his counsellor. "'I might retort your accusation, and blame the inconsiderate levity which foiled my design, and misled your own better judgment. But this is no time for recrimination.' De Bracy and I will instantly go among these shuffling cowards, and convince them they have gone too far to recede. "'It will be in vain,' said Prince John, pacing the apartment with disordered steps, and expressing himself with an agitation to which the wine he had drank partly contributed. "'It will be in vain. They have seen the handwriting on the wall. They have marked the paw of the lion in the sand. They have heard his approaching roar shake the wood.' Nothing will reanimate their courage. Would to God, said Fitzurse to Bracy, that aught could reanimate his own. His brother's very name is an ague to him. 
Unhappy are the counsellors of a prince, who wants fortitude and perseverance alike in good and in evil. End of chapter 14